Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, we will be speaking with Dr. Martha Curley, Professor of Nursing Science at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing in Philadelphia and Nurse Scientist at Children's Hospital in Boston. Uh, Dr. Curley is going to be talking about the RESTORE study. Welcome, Dr. Curley. Thank you, Dr. Parker. Wonderful to have this opportunity to finally talk about RESTORE. Well, we've been waiting for it for quite some time. Mm -hmm. So tell us how this whole study came about. First of all, what does RESTORE stand for, and how did you get going on this study? Gosh, it was um, a long time ago. I think it's always been a passion of mine because as a nurse looking at kids who are pretty sick at the, you know, the bedside, it's everyone's agenda to keep these kids really comfortable. But at the same time, as people sitting at the bedside, we see lots of different, you know, random variation and opinion and religion around how to keep somebody comfortable. So it's kind of interesting in that the RESTORE trial itself came from the prone positioning trial that was designed a long time ago. And RESTORE stands for Randomized Evaluation of Sedation Titration. Okay, And um, what we did during the prone study is we had many different protocols to enact to keep kids comfortable while they were prone. And at the end of the clinical trial, this kind of interesting thing happened is that everybody wanted to hang on to the sedation protocol because it was a good protocol and people enjoyed working off a protocol to manage sedation. At the same time, the adult critical care, uh, our adult colleagues were publishing nurse-implemented sedation therapy. They were publishing on, you know, arousal assessments. Uh, They were publishing on awakened breathing, you know, synchronizing, you know, that piece of it. And as you know, in pediatrics, we really don't have a lot of data to help guide our practice. So launching from the prone study, being really frustrated with our lack of agreement on how best to keep kids comfortable, things evolving in the adult population. In addition to that, you know, we do have a tendency in pediatrics to just adopt practices not necessarily tested in our population. You know, so we went ahead and designed a pilot study through the PLEASI network, the Pediatric Acute Lung Injury Sepsis Investigator Network, went there with a protocol, asked for volunteers in the audience of anybody who would be willing to pilot test the protocols so that we could get to testing a little bit outside of, you know, the prone trial. Reiner Gadat from Wisconsin and Heidi Dalton, right. Heidi Dalton from D.C. volunteered their organizations, and so we did a two-center pilot. Uh, had some really strong preliminary data that we could then go forth and try to get a larger clinical trial funded, and NHLBI, you know, agreed to fund it, and so it was launched. So tell us a bit about how the study was designed. Okay, so it was designed, uh, it was kind of interesting, because when it was originally proposed, we always felt that we had to do, it's a team-based intervention, so we always thought 
that it would be simply impossible to randomize teams. We couldn't randomize patients because, you know, envision that on this trial you're taking care of, you're going to be running a protocol, and on this one you're not running a protocol. Yeah, that and, work. Yeah, no. So we really went in with a, a cluster randomized design. Mm-hmm. You know, study section wanted randomization. We had originally um, designed it as a pre-post evaluation launching from the R21, and they were like, why? You know, don't do pre-post, give us randomization. And so we rewrote it for a cluster randomized design, which, as you know, as soon as you randomize for, you know, as soon as you power up a cluster <laughs> randomized design, you have to put in, uh, consider intercluster correlations and site-to-site variation. So that really increased the volume of or the enormity of how this study had to be conducted. So in order for us to really have sufficient power to answer the question, we had to enroll 2,400 kids, 1,200 in each arm, which was impedes critical care. Yeah, it was... How many sites did you have? Well, we have 31 sites. And we originally had 22 sites, and after a year of enrollment, we called them batch one. We were looking at our predictive modeling of how long it was going to take us to do this in 22 sites. And so we went back to the police network using the same decision making of who could participate, Mm -hmm. added nine more sites, collected some baseline data with them and randomized them. So all in all, we have 31 participating centers. 17 we randomized to the intervention arm and 14 to the control arm because we knew that if we asked parents for consent on an intervention, the consent rates would be a little bit lower than Mm -hmm. just can I collect data on the usual care arm. So that's why we imbalanced a little bit of the numbers uh, sites randomized. But all sites on median ended up enrolling about 50, 60 patients per site. So we had to screen more on the intervention side. But you know, we were able to get, you know, completely finished with enrollment in two and a half years. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. That number of kids. Wow. Yeah. Tell us about the intervention. So the intervention is called Restore, but the intervention itself was a team-based intervention because we needed, at each of the clinical sites, we needed physician, nursing, and pharmacy support. So it was an interprofessional type of intervention, so team-based intervention. And the intervention, quite simply, or maybe not, um, every single day it was important to identify the patient's trajectory of illness and put them into either the acute titration or weaning phase. Because, you know, the adults had tested a protocol that every single day you would turn off drug and every single day you would target, but we pushed pushed a little bit differently in our population in that we really do match sedation levels to illness state. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, so we, the first uh, piece of this is the team gets together on rounds every day, as they typically do, identifies the patient's trajectory, and then prescribes an SBS score based upon where that patient is. And obviously, when they are pretty sick, we prescribe like a negative one, negative two, so they're only responsive to touch or to pretty vigorous stimulation. But as they get better, you know, in the titration phase where you're starting to peel off ICU therapies, you could have a patient be awake. Mm 
And then especially moving them to the weaning phase, you know, they obviously have Have to be awake in order to continue to breathe after you pull out the endotracheal tube. Uh, So the intervention was team-based training on really helping them situate where the patient was, prescribe a goal, and then the restore algorithm was used by the bedside nurses with a standard order sheet to keep the patient managed per phase. Mm -hmm. The biggest pieces of this is that we did extubation readiness testing during the titration phase, sinking like the ABC trial, an arousal assessment, and a, a spontaneous breathing trial together if the patients were somewhat less than what we wanted them to be. And so arousal assessments when it was appropriate, extubation readiness testing, arousal assessments. But what's different here is that every eight hours the nurse had to make a decision about sedation. Every eight hours, you couldn't just ride the patient out. Uh-huh. You had to. None of this uh, sedate them more overnight just to keep them quiet. No, no. It was when you're in the titration phase, you're titrating. Uh-huh. Uh, you're going up or down depending upon the history of the patient in the previous eight hours. If the patient was requiring lots of boluses to keep them comfortable, then you would go up. 10 to 20 percent. But if the patient didn't require that, then you would come down 10 to 20 percent. And that was a hard part of really, you know, not letting somebody just ride out sedation, but really matching, really pushing every eight-hour titration. And then it also, uh, the restore protocol also has a weaning protocol. So if the patient only received opioids for less than five days, you could turn off the drugs and that would be it. But Mm -hmm. if the patient required more than five days of sedation, then there had to be a withdrawal assessment Mm -hmm. done to see what the patient's baseline assessment was, and then prescription of a a ceiling target of that watt one so that if that patient, you know, ended up having significant withdrawal symptoms, you would intervene. And the weaning plan was simply one agent at a time, start with the opioid, 10% reduction at hour zero, and then every eight hours after that until off, and then repeat with the benzo, 20% wean every day. Keeping the benzos on helped the symptoms of withdrawal. So that's why we chose to really eliminate opioids first, then the benzodiazepines, and only use clonidine if necessary to treat any withdrawal symptoms the patient was having, and really not automatically start methadone uh-huh. unless the patient kept failing. Uh-huh. Okay, And you know, the primary agents were what is typically prescribed, morphine, benzodiazepine, fentanyl if the patient had hypotension or reactive airways disease, and then we had a backup plan to support the primary agents if the patients were just difficult to sedate. Mm -hmm. And then, for example, DEX and propofol Mm -hmm. could be used to facilitate extubation. And then clonidine, ketamine, and pentobarb as secondary agents. Yeah, so that's kind of like in a synopsis of the protocol. And your control units just managed however, whatever their unit... But they collected the same data. Exactly. So what were your outcome measures? Well, we uh, the primary outcome was uh, length of mechanical ventilation and risk adjusting that and also accommodating mortality. So it ended up being, you know, duration mechanical ventilation, but really vent-free days. And that was the primary outcome variable. And we 
powered off a 20% reduction, and we thought we could get that based upon the preliminary work that we had done. And then the second, we had a host of secondary outcomes. I'm sure you did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was the typical things that you have to include. You know, we wanted to know whether it impact the acute phase of mechanical ventilation and the weaning phase. We wanted uh, to look at your specifically sedation-related adverse events. Mm-hmm. Because in reality, if we, you were waking these kids up and they were more active, we wanted to make sure that they were comfortable and not removing everything that was attached to them. So we looked at how much sedation they got, but really the measures of wakefulness, pain, and agitation were important as well. And then we also looked at iatrogenic withdrawal syndrome because, again, that's a very complex problem that really will prolong length of stay, and it's just burdensome for the entire team and the family and obviously the child to go Uh, through. Absolutely. Yeah. What were your major findings? Well, the... That you can talk uh, about it. Yeah, we finally can, uh, being uh, as of today, the embargo is finished. So we did not hit statistical significance off the primary outcome variable. The length of mechanical ventilation was the Kaplan-Mile curve was almost overlapping, did not hit on that at all. The median duration of mechanical ventilation was about six and a half days in both groups. Most of the secondaries that were related to ventilation, again, they were negative. Mortality, obviously, was the same. No differences there. Length of PICU stay and hospital stay, there were no differences in any of the durations of anything. The hospital length of stay was shortened up, but it was not statistically significant. But What we did find was a qualitative improvement in how the sedatives were managed and how the kids responded. It was really exciting to be able to see we really downshifted how much opioids those kids got. And also we shaved a day off a length of opioid exposure. Didn't really move too much on the benzodiazepines. Over time, we did see a progressive increase in the use of DEX in the control group. Not a surprise. Not a surprise. And we did see a significant reduction in the use of methadone in the intervention group. And on average, the intervention group received two agents for sedation and the control group three. Okay? And what was really exciting for us to see is that the kids had more awake and calm days than the control group. So we were able to have these kids be more awake and interactive with everyone, driving down the frequency of neurological testing. These kids had less neurological testing than the other groups. So, yeah, you're more awake, you're more interactive, you don't need the volume of neurological testing that is typically done. And then what we also saw was, although we didn't see an increase in pain and agitation, you know, adverse events, we had more episodic reporting of both pain and agitation because the kids were awake and they could be appropriately identified to be in pain or agitated and they were all managed with less drug than the control group because Uh, you knew what we were treating and we could treat them very quickly because they were more awake. 
So it was really exciting. And was also really exciting, again, it was the methadonios. It just, we were able to wean kids during that titration phase so they were more awake, getting less medications, so that you started weaning at a different place than the control group. Mm-hmm. And so you could wean them off their primary agent without faster. having to get them over to methadone. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So do you know if the intervention units have kept on using the protocol even when they were the data was complete which is what more than a year ago now? Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> did, did the units buy into it? Did they like the protocol? Oh, yeah. I mean, I had, well, I knew we were hitting payload when um, halfway through the intervention phase during the conference calls, uh, nurses on the calls would be saying, I don't know how I can run these drugs so low. You know, I have, is it okay to go back to intermittence because I can't get my pumps to go that low? Interesting. I know. So we knew that something was happening. And the whole environment, uh, people would look at these kids who were, you know, pretty sick at one point, but awake, interacting with their families, watching TV, Uh being able to communicate, still intubated, but being okay and comfortable which really changed the culture of the unit. And so, you know, we did send in auditors because it was a research intervention. We wanted to make sure that it was only implemented in patients who were consented. Mm -hmm. But some of it started rolling out. Oh, I I can't imagine it wouldn't. Right. And so, and we also audited the extent to which any of the intervention was was permeating through to, to the, the usual to the control uh, <laughs> right. the control units right right and we would stick somebody on rounds to see if that was happening but no we did debrief all the intervention sites the summer after the intervention still waiting for the control group to finish enrolling and almost all of them were holding on to the protocol obviously they wanted to be able to implement it and I'm like go ahead you know, yeah, it's out there. Yeah. No reason you can't. Right, it's a safe protocol. Yeah. You know, we did not see any major safety concerns. In terms of unintended extubations no. and uh, no. removing things that you mm-hmm. don't want them to remove. Right, we had more stridulous kids. You know, there was oh, a lot of, um, yeah. not a lot, but it, more post-extubation. But kids move with tubes. Yeah. You're going to have that. But we didn't have an increase in reintubation rates. Did you look at the use of restraints? We it's we didn't monitor that use uh-huh. because it is pretty much unit dependent. Uh-huh. But was also kind of um, really quite cool to see was we had less pressure ulcers in the intervention group, significantly less because immobility. Because they're not just lying there immobile. Exactly. You don't have the paralyzed, sedated orphans that we used right. to try. <laughs> right. No, we, it drove that down yeah. really hard. So, you know, the kids were more awake, more interactive, less pressure ulcers. So really the qualitative distinction, you know, of the sedation profiles in these kids really improved. Are you yeah. going to look at any long-term outcomes down the road? Definitely. That was part of the trial. We're not reporting it out in JAMA. Of course not. It's not out yet. <laughs> no. We are still, in fact, bringing kids back in. Uh-huh. Uh, so we are looking at the long-term effects of them being more awake in the intensive care uh-huh. unit. So replicating the CRESP, you know, six months after uh-huh. PICU discharge. So we are looking at that. 
that. And we were really fortunate, Scott Watson and myself, to get funded by NICHD to do what we're referring to as Restore Cognition. Uh-huh. So with Restore Cog, what we're going to do is bring kids back, uh, kids who were two weeks to eight years of age while they were critically ill. We know all of their medications. We know their hypoxemia, multi-system organ failure. So we could model out, really, is there a better cocktail of sedation in kids who have developing brains? Interesting. That, yeah. that will be fascinating. Right, right. Yeah. That's clearly a down-the-road thing, but yeah. that's, that's, yeah, these, that's wonderful a, that you'll, you'll have the opportunity to look at that. Yeah, so and it's really exciting, too, because at this um, point of the enrollment for that study, when we call up families and we ask them, you know, we have this opportunity, would you like to come in? And they're like, yes, yes, yes. yes. You know, we've got we've got funding for 500 kids to pull back, and we've already got 100 kids enrolled, wow. and we're starting to bring back our kids next month. So we're really excited about that. Yeah, that that is really very exciting. Mm-hmm. So it must have been a real challenge carrying out a study of this magnitude. Mm-hmm. A lot of sleepless nights. <laughs> <laughs> what, what were the biggest challenges? Oh, it's really... Um, I mean, it's kind of easy to get started because people are enthusiastic. And, you know, I think I had to, uh, given the the design of the study, there were units who were really excited to be randomized into the intervention. They got an intervention. They made their improvements in care. They were seeing good uh, results. And then I had these other sites who were just waiting they were enrolling and waiting. And doing the same old stuff. Doing the same old stuff, the same level of frustration. So uh-huh. trying to keep everybody continuously enrolling over uh-huh. you know, the two and a half years and then maintaining the engagement of the usual care arm and then making sure that you know, with all the different people who come rolling in and out of an ICU that they were trained appropriately. We really worked hard to do professional training. We had to do, everyone who touched the patient had to complete a post-test which was kind of unique for all the disciplines that we were dealing with, uh, to take a test to take care of the kid on protocol. Um, But it was really engaging everyone and keeping everybody excited over the study period. Our DSMB was fabulous. You know, they were quite separate. Uh We were fortunate enough because we were funded by NHLBI to have the ArtsNet DSMB monitoring us. Um, That's great. Yeah, we infused some pediatricians onto that, (laughs) and we thank them very much to bring the pediatric voice into the DSMB. But it was really, you know, keeping everybody engaged. And then, you know, as a clinical trialist, as soon as you start studying something, it goes away. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. like, you know, Absolutely. it's like where, yeah, because, you know, non-invasive ventilation, yeah, you know, yeah, in order yeah. to come into the trial, you had to be intubated and ventilated. Right. Well, there we were, intubate so many kids. yeah, there non-invasive ventilation. I mean, there were, you know, pulling, uh, some units got to be believers on non-invasive. So, uh-huh. uh, they would keep kids on non-invasive for a long period of time. So, and you had to, in order to get into restore, you had to really, be consented within 24, 48 hours of intubation. Uh-huh. So we really pushed hard to, to get that in. But yeah, I just remember one time I was at one of the intervention sites and it's just really exciting to round in when people talk the language of restore. 
instead of saying fentanyl, midazolam, next problem, it's about, okay, the kids in, in you know, the titration phase, we ought to be waking this patient up. Yeah. You know, the SBS needs to be a negative one, zero here. Having the parents say, it's wonderful to be able to interact, you know, yes. uh, with my child while they're sick. So it was um, really satisfying you know, to see it enacted and to play out in the real world. So what do you think the implications are of this study for our care in the pediatric ICU? Well, I think, you know, lessons that we've learned, number one, you don't have to be comatose. You know, it's okay in pediatrics. That's a tough one to sell. I think when you said it was a culture change, you were not kidding. Right. It's okay to have a toddler not be comatose and being ventilated. And they could be managed safely in a more awake state. And that, I think, alone will change the field of sedation in peace critical care. I think so. Um, definitely. It'll be really interesting to see, you know, your, your long-term follow-up restore cog mm-hmm. data because that may further inform this point. Definitely. But right uh, for now, yeah. you don't have to have them down and out. Right. Right, and to, we also to, have, to keep them safe. Yes, and we also learned that nurses could do this uh, within the interprofessional team, mm-hmm. participating on rounds, contributing to that endpoint, and could work off the algorithm to keep the kids safe where they needed to be. So it really is a nurse implemented intervention that can be done safely. So that was another piece of this that we learned. Excellent. Hmm. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? No, I'm just really excited to be able to finally, you know, share the data and get the word out. And, you know, it's interesting because obviously as a clinical trialist, you want a big positive study on your outcome, uh, primary outcome variable. But in talking to somebody about the outcome, who's also a father, said to me, Martha, if you told me you were going to shave a day off of mechanical ventilation versus, you know, that my daughter could be more awake and interactive with me and I could connect with them, I think I'd rather the latter. So it's all about the patients and the families and making the horrible experience that these kids do have to endure a little bit more tolerable. Well, I really commend you for carrying out such a large and complex study and for taking the data and giving us, you know, such such a positive view of how we can improve our our care, and I really look forward to uh, the follow-up studies you're doing. Thank you. Many, many more to come, given that data set. Well, it's really, I know it has been a real challenge (laughs) doing this, but it's really a very important study for our field. Thank you, Dr. Parker. Thank you for talking with us. Yes, I'm excited. Thank you. We have been speaking today with Dr. Martha Curley from the University of Pennsylvania about the RESTORE study. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Gain implementation strategies for a more effective and lasting application of the pain, agitation, and delirium PAD guidelines at the ICU Liberation and Animation Conference to be held September 9th and 10th. 2015 at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee, USA. This conference is held in partnership with SCCM and Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Visit www.sccm.org 
slash ICU Liberation to register. Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University Medical Center. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.